Hello and welcome to the Celebration Church podcast. I'm so glad you're here. In just a moment, we're going to jump into a message from Pastor Roger. But before we do, I want to encourage you, connect with us online. Whether that's following us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, or it's subscribing to our YouTube page or this podcast, do it. We want to stay connected. And another great way you can connect with us is be our guest on a Sunday morning service. If you're here locally, come on out. We want to meet you and connect with you, worship with you. We'd really enjoy that. But without further ado, let's jump into this message from Pastor Roger. We have a need, and so I love that, and I really encourage you to do whatever you can to show up like a family. Not like, well, maybe not like you know, or our actual families, because they don't always show up, but like family of God should show up, okay? Well, I want to say thank you for allowing me to come talk today. Um, if you don't know, if you're a visitor here, I am not the pastor. Just cluing you on that. No way, no how. Um, Pastor Roger and Kim are on vacation on a much-needed, much-deserved break. And we are so glad they get a chance to get away and breathe and relax and enjoy themselves. And they're going to come back refreshed, and we are going to love that. And so if you're a first-time guest, welcome. Um, we're just ordinary people. So if you're looking for perfection... Keep on looking. Um, but if you are here and you um, kind of like what you see, we'd love for you to come back. Um, you need to meet Pastor Roger and Kim. They're super cool. They're, they're amazing. And I know that they would love to meet you, so I hope you come back and, and get to know them. So today we're going to do a, a short, short message um, on, on a passage that I actually really love. I think I'm, I'm a story person. So I think I love all the stories. I'm like, that's my favorite one. This one's my favorite one, and that's my favorite one. But this one actually might really be my favorite one. Um, and mainly because there's so many nuances to it. There's so many levels in it that you could teach on this for, for a long, long time and not completely plumb the depths of it. And so I just really love this story. And as a matter of fact, um, a few years back, I taught on it at a retreat, and there was a few of you there. And so some of it might be a little familiar to you, but I'm really honored to be able to share it with you today. So we're going to go to John. If you have your Bibles or your iPads or your iPhones, please turn there. If you don't, it's going to be up here on the Sky Bible, and you can read it there. Um, but we're going to go to a passage in John chapter 4. This is a really, really familiar story. If you've been in church at all, you've probably heard the story. Um, if you grew up in church and you're my age, you probably saw it flannel graft at some point. Um, but this is a really cool story, and um, we're just going to kind of Take a look at an older story and see if we see anything new in it for us today. All right, are you ready? John chapter 4? All right. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and he returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. And the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. 
She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you the living water. Oh, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, oh, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Oh, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come to this well here to get water. Go get your husband, Jesus told her. Uh, I don't have a husband. The woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the one you're married, you're not even married to the man you're with right now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it the Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it's here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? And Jesus said, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on the mountain or in Jerusalem, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. Well, we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. The time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the woman said, well, I know that Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, uh, ta-da, <laughs> like, like I'm the Messiah. <laughs> and just then the disciples came back and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the guts to ask, what are you doing with her? And what are you talking about? The woman left her water jug and she ran beside the well and she ran back to her village telling everyone, come see a man who's told me everything that I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Come see a man. Dear Lord, I thank you for this group. And I thank you for your presence in this room. We certainly felt your presence earlier while we were singing and worshiping you and talking about who you are. And so I pray that right now your presence will become very, very, very felt in this room. That as we begin to discuss you in this story and how you show up to real people in real situations and in real places, that your palpable presence will let us realize who we are and who you are. I thank you for your goodness and your grace and I thank you that you always always show up, especially when we least expect you. Thank you. How many people are here from a small town? Quite a few, quite a few. Um, I love big cities, 
really do like them very, very much, but I'm actually from a very small town in Alaska, which is a little different than towns here in this region. Um, the town that I grew up in was actually on an island. And so it was 100 miles long and 20 miles wide, but it was all mountains and then ocean, and the next stop is Japan. And so it was like out there, and there was only 14 miles of road, like going straight up and down. Um, and so half of that was gravel and half of it was paved, but 14 miles is not big, and that is a small town with a small amount of road, and that is a really hard place to be. Because you, when, you're, when you're there, you can only get there from plane or boat, and like you're stuck. You are stuck. And small towns are great because you can have a lot of fun and you can like, everybody knows everybody and there's kind of a, a nice community feel, but it's also like really a bummer when you're a teenager and trying to get away with stuff because everybody knows everybody and everybody has a mouth, right? <laughs> At least that was my experience. So I would do as much as I could to have fun, but it seemed like no matter what I did, like my parents would find out. My, pa- my dad and my mom were pastors, and so like everybody had to tell what the pastor thought I was doing. So that was kind of a really, really hard thing for me growing up. But, um, but I did have a lot of fun. I mean, there was multiple times when I remember going off with my friends and going out and doing something. I'd come home, and my dad would just be like, so where have you been? And I'd be like, uh, nowhere. And he had already heard the story from somebody who'd called him who saw his daughter doing something she shouldn't be doing somewhere in town. So it was always felt like a problem for me. So I, I eventually found out the people that I could trust and people I could like hang out with. And um, I, it was really hard too because I had a, I had a family um, who were also very, very nosy. And um, I have a sister who's two years younger than me, and she, she got into her own little bit of stuff too, and so and she could keep her mouth shut, so that was kind of nice. Um, but then I have a brother who is 10 years younger than me, and he had a little mouth on him. And when you're 16 and you have a six-year-old brother who's just talky-talky, that is not convenient, is not helpful at all. And... Um, so I remember doing what I could do just to like get through my life, and then eventually he got to where he was annoying as all could be, and I could not stand it. Now, in this small town, we had two radio stations. We had one that was an NPR station, and you just hear news all day long, and at night they'd play classical music, which is okay. I like classical, but not like all the time. And they had another station that was just kind of like a generic station, and like there'd be like one hour of country, one hour of rock, one hour of this, and it was just kind of like a free-for-all. So that was the Sunday when I would listen to when my parents weren't around. And I remember calling in and like, especially calling hours, you can get whatever you want. Because this was back before, like I think Walkmans were out. It certainly wasn't around like Spotify and podcasts. This is back in the good old days. So I remember calling in and like asking for like classics like U2 and Boy George and, you know. <laughs> Really, really good music. So um, had, those were my, my things. And so they had this one, like, show on this radio station. It was at noon, and it was called Problem Corner. And on, at noon on Problem Corner, you would call in, and you would share what you needed. Now, this, we didn't have Facebook Marketplace. We didn't have Craigslist. I don't even think we had, like, penny savers. There was just nothing. And so you would call in, and you'd say, I need to have my washing machine fixed. You know, and you'd give your phone number and somebody call you, hey, I happen to repair wash machines or I'm having a garage sale or I'm, you know, my dog just had puppies and I need to get rid of them. It was Problem Corner. And this is where the whole community would, I mean, everybody would tune in to see what was going on. This is where you'd say, we're going to have, you know, a dance at the local, you know, brotherhood club or whatever it would be. And people would know the news. So I had this problem um, and I knew that there was Problem Corner and I figured like, that's a solution. So I decided I needed to get rid of my brother, 
because he had gone too far. So one day, I went into the kitchen, and I got the, the wall phone, and it has, like, those long cords. Remember, they're, like, 20 feet long? And so, like, I brought it clear over around to the back corner by the wood stove, and I'm, like, calling in the problem corner, and I'm waiting and waiting, and they finally, the guy answers my call, and I say, hi, um, this is my problem. I have a brother I need to get rid of. And the guy was just kind of like, excuse me? <laughs> and I was totally serious. I didn't pick up on the cues at all. And he, um, I began to tell him my situation. And I told him, like, how he's super, super funny and annoying, and he leaves his stuff everywhere, and I fall on his toys, and he gets his way all the time, and he's super, super mouthy, and he is available for anybody looking for a child. <laughs> so I gave his description. I gave his name. I gave our address. I had actually told him I had packed a little bag and left it on the porch with his toys and some pair of pants. And I was completely serious. I figured it was going to solve all my problems. And right about then, the guy says, um, is, is this Ellen? And I was like, oh, small towns, small towns. And at that same time, I saw this flash come out of the laundry room, and it was my mom who, like everybody else in town, was listening to the radio and heard her daughter telling everybody where they could come and kidnap her child. <laughs> so she came out of there like raving, raving mad. And so I dropped the phone and ran off and still had my problem. <laughs> so still had that problem today, actually. <laughs> he's, he's been around a lot. Um, but I, I, I know what it feels like to be in a small town where you just can't get away from anything. Like, everybody knows all your business. Like, everybody's in your story. They know what's going on. They know, like, what you need, what you don't need, what you've done, what you haven't done. They know everything about you. And I, and I kind of feel like that's what this woman was up against. Like, she just couldn't get away. Like, everybody knew her. They knew her story. She was just stuck. This is such an interesting passage because in the passage, it says that Jesus had to go to Samaria. And that's really actually not a really accurate translation because he didn't have to go there. As a matter of fact, that passage that he was taking was traveled quite a bit by the Jews. But they would go a long way around to avoid Samaria because the Jews hated Samaritans, hated them. Like, this was not just like, you're a different football team, but like, they, they hated them because the Samaritans were half Jew, half Assyrian. And they represented the people who had harmed them for years and years and generations and generations. They hated them, hated them so much that there was even a law in the Mishnah, which is the application of the Torah. And the law said, if you have a Samaritan in your home and you give him a meal, you will reap fiery judgment on your entire family. Samaritans were avoided at all costs. So for Jesus to say, like, I have to go there, it wasn't like he had no other like, road, road options. Something was compelling him. Something in him said, I need to go there. There's, there's something there that requires my presence. And so when he gets there, he's sitting, he's waiting at the well. The disciples go into town to go get tacos or I'm, that's what I'm thinking I'd be getting tacos they're going in the town and they're they're looking for food and Jesus is there by himself waiting and this woman comes up now this is really interesting because 
women in that era were even lower class than the Samaritans. Matter of fact, one rabbinic proverb said, Thank thou, Jehovah, that thou didst not make me a woman. Isn't that just so awful? One of the most common proverbs at that time said, Better that the Torah is burned than to be read by a woman. Women were considered so, so bad that if you, she even read the scripture, just burn it. They weren't even allowed in the synagogue where the reading of God took place. They had to go sit outside somewhere else and swap recipes. They weren't allowed to be in there, which means the woman never got to actually hear the scriptures that said that there was hope. They never got to hear it read that, that there was life available to her. She never got to like, hear the words from the scriptures actually go into her ears and say, there's more for you. She just had to take other people's word for it. And so it's highly unlikely that in this scenario, she shows up to the well. It's highly unlikely that a Jewish man would engage a conversation with a Samaritan. And it's even more unlikely that a Jewish rabbi would begin a theological discussion with a woman. And yet that's where we find Jesus. Like he goes out of his way to make himself known by the marginalized, the ostracized, the people who are looked down upon, the people who are set aside, the people who are said, you're not good enough, you don't deserve this. Jesus is like, that's where I'm headed. Those are my people. So we know a little bit about this woman. We know a few facts. We know one thing is that she's been married five times. Right? She gets around a little bit. So we know that she, she's had a little bit of a story. What we don't actually know is why. We don't know that. We can surmise it. Traditionally, often in churches, they, I've heard it taught a million times, I've actually taught it, that, that she probably was a woman of low repute. She was maybe very sexualized. Maybe she um, had low morals. We heard that there's something wrong with her. I even heard some people say that she's a prostitute. Well, it doesn't make sense that people would marry a prostitute. Like, why? But that's, that's who she was. That's what people say to her. However, there's something that we might have missed that I think it's really important we look at. There's another possibility about this woman. Number one, we don't know why she's been married five times, so we can use a little bit of um, deduction to figure this out. Number one, it's quite possible that she's not, doesn't have five husbands because they passed away. Because scripture is really clear when there's a widow. Scripture says this was a widow or this man lost his wife. That's mentioned many, many, many times in scripture. So it's likely that if, if her husbands had passed away, she would have been indicated as a widow. So that's, we can probably rule that out. What we can't rule out is why she was married and then likely divorced. So here's a really important thing to consider. In first century Judeo-Christian culture, it was impossible for a woman to ask for a divorce. It didn't matter the circumstances, abuse, neglect, abandonment, she couldn't request a divorce. Women didn't have the right to speak up for themselves. They didn't have a right to ask what they needed. For, needed. Only men could make that request, and men could do it for anything. As a matter of fact, Rabbi Halal was the prominent Jewish leader at the time of Jesus' birth. And matter of fact, he is considered an authoritative Jewish leader in most of all of Judaic history. And at that time, his disregard for women was so great that he made a law in Mishnah that a man could divorce a woman for virtually any reason. It didn't matter what it was. You burn the meatloaf, divorced. I'd have been gone a long time ago. <laughs> I'm just saying. 
It didn't matter what it was. If he didn't like the way she looked, if she didn't please him intimately, if there was any kind of conversation, she didn't laugh at his jokes. All he had to do was take her into a public place and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And in that moment, it was done. But here's the other thing about that culture is that when that happened, not only was her hope, her love destroyed, but a deep shame would come over her. She was considered by the entire community to be no good, throw away trash, she used up, just forget it, move on, find somebody else because she was over with. So it was extremely unlikely for a woman to be married twice, three times, four times, it just, it didn't happen. So many scholars will say that the reason that it's possible that she was married five times, likely was not because she was loose, it might have been because she was so great. That is the only reason a man would risk marrying someone with such a bad reputation. So it's really possible she was beautiful. It's really possible she was the kindest person, had great character, was someone worthy, that someone that people wanted to be with. And that's the only reason a man would say, you know what, I know you got a lot of baggage and I heard a lot of stuff about you, but I'm willing to take that risk because you're worth it. So that may have been what's actually happening. Here's another thing to consider. Even though there are five men who said that about her, all five of them walked away. Now, one of the most prominent reasons for a person to request a divorce during that time was infertility. Because families, that was your survival. It was your livelihood. It was your protection. So if a woman couldn't have children, that was a deep, deep, deep shame. And so what's really likely is that she wasn't a terrible, terrible woman. She was a woman whose body didn't work the way she wanted it to. And so because of that, it's really possible that she paid a price that she never asked for. She carried a burden with her that nobody, nobody would want to carry. So now she's been taken for test drives five times and five times repeatedly told she's not enough. She's living on the edge of town with another man in shame, likely because if she didn't live with someone, she could have been turned into a slave. She could have been sold. She could have been starved to death. She needed somebody, but why risk it a sixth time? I mean, I certainly wouldn't have. And that's where Jesus finds her. We know many parts of this story. We know her sneaking up to the well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, trying to get away from people in their mouths, what may not know is that maybe she was innocent of the rumors that had maligned her. She was just trying to survive. And so it's there that Jesus meets her. And I love the way he does this. The first thing he says to her is, can I have a drink? And I just love that because I think as Christians, many times we go to people and we assume that everybody's screwed up and we have all the answers. So let me just fix you right up and go on your way. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't walk up to her and say, clearly, you're just, you're just messed up. Let me, let me take care of this for you. The first thing he does is he honors where she is. He honors what she has to bring to the world. And what she has is water. It's the desert in the middle of the day. He has no way to drink. And he sees something of value in her, and he respects that. Someone who has nothing, and he gives her a little bit of dignity. Oh, I love that God approaches us like that. But it's still confusing for her. She says, like, well, why are you talking to me like 
can you not tell that I'm a Samaritan woman and you are a Jewish guy? Because nobody talks to me. And he says, yeah, well, I want to talk to you. And he begins to tell her that he has something that she really craves, and that is living water. And of course she wants that water. She wants to be filled. She really wants to get away from going to the well in the middle of the day. I mean, I would have wanted that. She's like, I want some of that water. And so he says to her, go get your husband. And in that moment, years of shame, years of abandonment, years of neglect, years of dashed hopes and dreams and the things people have said, the barbs that have wounded her come falling, crashing down on her shoulders. Shame is one of the most horrific things that humans experience, but it is something that we all experience. It actually shows up in Genesis, the first, the first story. It's in Genesis, in the garden. Shame shows up. Shame is the work of evil. Shame is what causes us to believe things that aren't true about ourselves, to believe lies and believes that our experiences and our, 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 the words that are spoken of us are really defined who we are. And what happens when we have shame is our brain begins to like change the way it understands things. Change is a, a deep undercurrent current that will actually shift. Like you made a mistake, you screwed, you know, screwed something up, you stole a cookie, you shouldn't have, and all of a sudden it's, I'm worthless, I'm no good. I, I can't do anything right. Nobody will ever love me. Nobody will ever do anything right. I, just, I, I have to run, I have to hide. Because what shame does is shame begins to shift the way you see who you are. And then here's the really tricky thing. This is when you can begin to identify shame. The first thing that happens is people begin to hide. Shame causes a wedge. So people pull away from the, those that are around them. They might pull away physically. You'll be in a conversation with something and, and some random thing will be said and shame will be felt and somebody has to jet out because they're like, I can't handle it. It feels too intense. It's, I can't do it. I got to go. It, they physically will remove themselves from the discomfort of shame. Sometimes it's, it's just a verbal like, or, or an emotional. They'll just shut down and they'll just like, they go flat. They'll refuse the conversation. They'll change the subject. They don't want to deal with it. That's shame. Sometimes they will push. Some of us are fighters, right? So when shame comes, what do we do? Like, all right, bring it, and we're gonna fight against it because the last thing we want is connection when we're in the middle of shame. And that's what she experiences. That's what she's feeling. So when he says, go get your husband, she is like overwhelmed with the pain. And she's been hiding at the well. That's why she comes in the middle of the day. And then he says that, she can't handle it. That's why she wants to change the subject. And I love this because he says to her in the middle of this, he says, go get your husband. And honestly, the, the, the Ellen would be like, what? Are you serious, Jesus? Like you were doing so good with her. Like you guys had been really poor. She was wanting so much what you had. She wants the water already. Like why are you gonna ruin it by going and getting in the shame business? Like seriously, don't bring it up. Just like avoid it. That would be me. But Jesus says, no, go get your husband. And here's what I think is interesting in this. He's really good. He is not saying that to condemn her. He's not even saying that because it's culturally appropriate and he has to speak to the man of the house. That's not why he's saying it. The reason he asks, go get your husband, is because he knows that he is everything she's ever needed. He knows that he holds within him everything that her heart has longed for, that her, her dreams have been. He has it all. 
before he can offer that to her, he needs her to become aware of what it is that she has been substituting for God. She can't receive the well. She can't receive the water. She can't receive the promise or anything until she's able to see, I've been searching in the wrong place for goodness. And when she begins to do that, something changes in her. The first thing is she changes the subject because she's like, whoa, this is like so intense. Something's going on here. So of course, like most people do, we change the subject we avoid. And if we're Christians, when we're uncomfortable, we talk about like spiritual things because that makes us feel better, especially theology. We're like, oh yeah, well, let's see, women preachers, I don't know about that. Because suddenly we can get all theological about stuff because that feels easier than talking about hard things. And so she begins to talk with Jesus about worship. And this is like so, so, so good. There are 10 words in the Greek language that are translated into the word worship. 10 words. And Jesus chooses one to describe worship to her. And the word he chooses is the word proskino. Now, many times in many Bibles, it'll be translated to bow down. Pros, like when prostrate before the Lord, laying down, bow down. But it's actually a, a two word. It's a compound word. And the beginning is pros, which is to move towards to move forward towards something. And kano means something very different. It means to kiss. To kiss. Consider this woman's story. Her whole life, she's wanted to belong. Her whole life, she's wanted to matter. She's wanted to be good enough She's wanted to be acceptable. She's wanted to be worth something. And so she has reached out for people and experiences and things, trying to find the place that her heart longs for. And every single time, she's turned away. Every single time she's told she's not good enough, she doesn't measure up, she's not gonna mean anything, she gets kicked to the curb, Every single time she hopes that this will be the one who will truly keep his word and love me and it will last, and it never does. And then here on the outskirts of town and by an isolated well, she meets a man. And he's not condescending to her. He doesn't belittle her. He's not making a play. He's not coming on to her. Instead, what he says is he looks into her eyes and he says, Woman, if you will move toward me with your affection, everything you've ever desired will be met. All the things you've ever needed in your life, the things you've struggled for, the things in the middle of the night you've prayed for and cried for and, and believed maybe it's real, maybe it's not, am, am I worth it, can it happen for me? It's all right here. But what it takes is you to turn towards me with your affection. Bring your hope to me. Bring your fear to me. Bring your longing to me. Bring the moments you thought you weren't enough. Bring it to me. Look at me for what your soul craves. He said, and when you look to me, when you bring your affections to me, you will recognize who you truly are. And her soul felt its worth. 
Genesis 1 talks about us being made in the image of God, called the Imago Dei, the image of God. What that means is that every one of us is created to be a reflection of him. Your body is a reflection of him. The color of your skin, the texture of your hair, the, the shape of your physique, that is a reflection of your creator. Your personality, introverted, extroverted, shy, courageous, cautious, logical, passionate, create, whatever it might be, that is a reflection of the nature of Jesus. And God, God put all of himself into you. His thumbprint is on you. That means that every human being that's ever existed Every human being that's currently here in this room, outside this room, they all reflect God. It doesn't matter their gender. It doesn't matter their culture, their ethnicity. It doesn't matter where they live, whether they go to church or not. It doesn't matter their political affiliation. It doesn't matter who they are. They are a reflection of an almighty God. He wanted her to see that who you are is not defined by what others say you are. Who you are is defined by what I've already said about you. What's really cool is in John 1, um, the scripture talks about how God came and the word was made flesh and it dwelt among us. And it says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And from his essence, from Jesus' being, like his presence, we received grace upon grace. And that actually, the really cool thing about that particular word, when you look at it, it's not a def definitive grace. It's not you received a grace. It's actually like an, there's no ending to that word, which means that it's in his presence, there's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Like it doesn't end. When Jesus shows up on the scene, what you're experiencing, his presence, it's the fullness of truth. That's him. That's his essence. But it's also the fullness of grace. They're inseparable. You can't, you can't separate grace and truth. If you try to separate grace and truth, truth without grace is condemnation and judgment. That's not who he is. And grace without truth is denial, avoidance. It's like a wink. It's like, I didn't say anything. You're good. Don't worry about it. That's not actual grace. It can't truly be grace unless there's acknowledgement of the truth. Which is why... When he says to her, like, what's your story? She has to come up with the truth. Like, if she doesn't do it, like, then there really isn't any grace. Like, she, it's not worth anything unless she can say it. In John 8, it says, we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. That's such a cool, cool word there. The Greek word in that part for know is the word gnost which actually means it's not no like knowledge. Like you're going to have knowledge of the truth. You're going to have information about the truth. You can write a book on the truth. That's not what it's saying. That word actually means appointment, encounter, experience. So what it's saying is that when you meet Jesus, you will have an appointment with truth. You will have an encounter with truth. You are going to have an experience when truth walks into the room and looks at you and says, this is your story. And when that happens, his grace will like surround you and he'll say, but this is who I am for you and your story. And so that's what happens to this woman. He walks in, he meets her at the well. He's been waiting for her. He shows up at the well and there she is. And he gives her a litany of truth, a six point litany on who you are. He says, this, this is what you've been believing about yourself? 
Like, this is who you say you, you are. You believe you're worthless and you have to go hide off in the middle of the day? You believe that all you're good for is, like, trying to give someone children or trying to make people happy? He says, I'm here to tell you something. That's not who you are. And when she sees him, every unmet desire, her grief and isolated loneliness, the failed attempts to make her hopes come true, all of her efforts have been tossed aside when his goodness and his grace shows up and she witnesses that in his presence. And in that instance, for the first time in her life, she sees who she really is. And that's why she jumps up and she said, you gotta meet this man. Like he, he's told me everything I've ever done. And that's not who I am. She's like, I finally, I finally see who I am. The band would come back. Today, my prayer is that we experience what this woman experienced at the well. There's nothing that you can ever say or do that will sway God's love for you. He, he created you. He designed you. He knows everything about you. And no matter what you've done, no matter what has been done to you, it doesn't change the fact that he loves you. It doesn't change the fact that you are his, that in his eyes, you are made right. Our worth is not based on our performance, our successes, our failures. It's not based on the experiences or the wounds that we carry. It's not determined by the expectations of others or their assessments of our lives. You do not get to define who I am. It took me a long time to figure that out. A lot of pain, a lot of heartache, a lot of being someone who I wasn't. Until I realized the only one who tells me who I am is him. Oh, talk about being set free. That's what he offers us. You are who you are because it's what he says you are. Not because what you do, but because what he's already done for you. That's why you are who you are. He goes out of his way and makes a point to go to the places where you're hiding, the places where you go to escape so no one will actually know the real you. He goes out of his way to find you in those spots. And he says to you, what have you been doing to substitute my presence? What, what have you been doing to try to make up for what you think you need to make it happen? Like, bring that to me. Bring your desire to me. Are you, are you working 70 hours a week trying to become like successful or be, be a great dad? Like bring that desire for, for need and worth to me. Like, are you, are you doing things with your body that you don't really want to do? He says, bring that to me. Like, I'll show you what real acceptance is. I will show you who you really are. And that's what he's offering us today. And when we do that, when we bring that to him, he looks us in the eyes, takes our face in his hands. And he says, let me tell you who you truly are. And then he offers us grace after grace 
after grace, after grace. It's unending. It's still going on. May we not judge ourselves or others for the times we have been found in the margins, for the times we've been voiceless, we've lost our dignity. May we honor ourselves and others for the weights we've all had to carry and not judge ourselves and each other for the way we've carried them. I don't know about you, but I know that this room is filled with humans. Pretty sure. Sometimes it's questionable. But one thing I do know about humans is each one of us carry weights that we didn't ask for. The story isn't just about a woman at a well, it's about humans at wells. And I'm here to tell you this morning that you are not the harmful words that have been spoken over you. You're not a mistake. You're not an afterthought. You're not a liability. You are not gonna be angry just like your dad or walk away from everybody just like your brother. You're not gonna be like crazy and unpredictable like that cousin that you have. That's not who you are. You're not defined by the sum of your actions or by the sum of other people's actions towards you. You're not gonna fall in the same spiral as all your generations of families. That's not who you are. You will not be a statistic. You're not gonna be a has-been. Instead, he says, you are created in his image. You are a reflection of God Almighty. You're his child. You house his presence in your body. Oh my goodness. You're the salt of the earth. You're the child of light. You are chosen. You're beloved. You belong. I'd like everybody to stand with me. As we close today, I wanna ask you a couple of questions. I love this story. Um, Mainly because I just like story about really cool women. Just too. But the other thing is that this is a story that applies to every single one of us. And so I want you to ask yourself, where is it that you have found yourself hiding? What is the place that you go to in your life to kind of like pretend that you don't have things you just wish weren't happening? Some of us hide in like, we literally go places like this well. Some of us hide in our work. Some of this hide in identity that we create for ourselves, especially like social media online. We can curate this life that really isn't the truth about who we are. Where is it that you go to hide? He wants to meet you there. When you're there, I want you to ask yourself, what is it you've been doing to substitute his presence in your life? The things your heart needs, like what have you been searching for in place of that? What is it that you've been using to pretend that it's all gotten, it's all together? And the truth is you know that it's just not, not happening the way you need it to happen. And I want to tell you, he wants to meet you there. He wants to take that substitute and he wants to put himself in that place and say, I'm everything, everything you've ever needed. Everything you've ever needed. You have trouble believing that. 
I want you first to try to risk saying it to him. Like say it out, risk it, it's scary. It's really, it takes, it takes tremendous guts to tell the truth, but do it, tell the truth to him. He can handle it. You're not gonna freak him out. He's, he's okay with that. And if you are able to do that, listen to what he says back to you. Like listen to what he speaks over you. Listen to the places where he begins to like move inside your heart and begin to change things and shift things and move them around to make you who he's called you to be. If you can't believe it's true, find somebody that you trust who can walk with you in that grace. Who can say to you, that isn't who you are. I know how you've been living, I've been watching it, but it's not who you are. If you wanna be the new person, in a few weeks we'll probably be doing the baptisms. Get in the tank and come out a new person. Come out who you are, who he says you are. That's available to you. Lord, you knew us before we were even born. Your presence has been hovering around our lives for for an entire, entire life been waiting for us, listening to us, watching us. God, I ask that you give us the courage to step in and to trust you with who we are. God, I know that there are wonderful, wonderful people in this room, and some of them know you deeply, and some of them are still trying to figure you out. That every single one of us has something that we are using as a substitute for you. So I pray that you will make that clear to us that we will have the courage to lean into that and pursue you because you really don't have a rival. The words that have been spoken over us, <laughs> they are nothing compared to the words you speak over us. God, when your goodness and your grace and your mercy sweep in, you change the topography of our hearts and our minds become free and we become whole in you. And that's what we long for. That's what we pursue. And so I pray that over this group. And I also pray that anything that might come against them, anything that might make them question whether this is for them or it's real or it applies or it's good or it can happen or they're too bad, they've gone too far, things are too rough for you. God, I command that thing to leave in Jesus' name. Any things holding them back, any barriers, any schemes, any lies, let them just fall to the side so we can lean into who you say we are. You are a good God. And I am, I am so, so grateful that you you go out of your way to find me when I'm hiding and I'm alone when you show up. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you for your goodness to this room. I pray that you speak to people's hearts right now. And I pray that as they leave and they go about their day and this evening when they go to bed at night that you will just hover, give them dreams, whisper in their ears, remind them, let me show you who you are. Let me show you who you are. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Upon grace, upon grace. Hey, I just want to say thank you again for tuning in to today's podcast. 
If you want to learn more about Celebration Church, I'd encourage you to go to our website, www.thecelebration.church to find out more. Well, we love you guys, and let's continue to love God, love people, and change the world.